today, and Brother Chuck's leading, the prayers that have been offered, comments at the Lord's table. Appreciate very much, and uh, people are prepared and uh, lead us effectively, and uh, that enables us to engage and participate ourselves in an effective and uplifting way, and I, uh, I'm very thankful for that. If you're a student of the Bible, you might have noticed that Paul's letters often follow a certain pattern. There's a, a certain kind of an organization to them. There's a salutation where he identifies himself as the author. author. During that or in that salutation, many times he'll mention, maybe very briefly, some of the ideas that he wants to discuss in the book as he, as he follows through. Uh, there's a doctrinal section or a theological section to begin with. And then the second half will be a practical section. And of course, it's hard to make a clean distinction or real uh, clear distinction between the doctrinal and the practical. I understand that each one of them relates in a very thorough way to the, to the next. But that's, that's kind of the, the way the books are organized. I don't know if every one of them is organized that way, but several of them are. And then at the end of the letter, there'll be some personal remarks, some personal comments. Uh, Romans chapter 16 is uh, a passage like that where he uh, engages in these and writes these personal remarks. A lot of times he'll greet people by name, for example. Sometimes just the names are given, and other times there may be a comment associated with the names. For example, Romans 16, verse 3, Aquila and Priscilla risked their necks for Paul and hosted a church in their house. Verse 5, Eponidas it was the first convert in Asia. And in verse 13, Paul greets the mother of Rufus, who he identifies as his mother as well. I don't know that she's literally his mother, but probably someone who took him in and cared for him and so after his needs at some point as if she were his mother. We might have some women like that in our lives. In verse 23, he says, Erastus was the city treasurer. Sometimes there are other personal remarks made. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 8, Paul says his, his intention is to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. He encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, to make every effort to come before winter. And when he does, to bring his cloak, especially, or the books, and especially the parchments. And so these comments give us some insight into Paul as a human being, the, the personal side of Paul. And so he's interested in having his cloak with him over the winter months. And you can understand why. But he's there, he's going to study. So bring the books and bring the parchments. And so we get some insight into Paul as a person from these comments. Sometimes some exhortations are made. Romans 16, verse 17. Mark those who are causing division and occasions of stumbling contrary to what I taught you. In 1 Corinthians 16, and verse 10, he tells them, If Timothy comes, see to it that he is with you without cause to be afraid. He's doing the Lord's work. That's, a little, that's an insightful comment, isn't it? And so he tells the Corinthians, and we know kind of the tempestuous relationship Paul had with the Corinthians. Now, if Timothy comes, I want you to treat him well, and so he won't be afraid, you know. He's doing the Lord's work. Well, in the sermon today, we want to look at one of these closing passages in the book of Titus. 
Titus chapter 3, right here at the end of the book of Titus, short letter. Titus is a preacher, kind of like Timothy was. Now, I don't know that we know Titus' age, whether he was young or middle-aged or just where he was as far as his age is concerned. We know Timothy was a young man, but uh, they are young preachers or preachers uh, doing the Lord's work, sort of uh, under the guidance of Paul. And so Paul writes Titus a letter. Titus is in the island of Crete, and Paul gives him some instructions. And here at the end, we have some of these personal comments. We have some specific names mentioned, Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, and Apollos. We have some personal information about them. When I, this is chapter 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. And so, gives us a little insight about Paul's traveling there. I'm going to be in Nicopolis. He goes on to say, I've decided to spend winter there, and so send them on to me there. And then verse 13, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. And so there's a few other people that are associates of Paul, and he wants the Christians there in Crete and Titus to, to support them and send them on their way. And I suppose that includes give them the necessary things they, they, uh, they need as they, they travel from place to place. And then he says in verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds. One of these exhortations we mentioned a moment ago. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in truth. Grace, typical ending of Paul, grace be with you all. I want to especially focus on this verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, Meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And there are really kind of four parts to this passage that we're going to take a look at in our time this morning. And so I've just taken the title from the first few words there. Our, per our people must learn, which is true. Our people must learn. In this case, there's some specific things that our people need to learn. He tells us that our people need to learn to engage in good deeds. Now, he's already stressed this in the letter a few times. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 7, he tells them to uh, be an example, tells Titus to be an example in good deeds. In verse 14, he says that God, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deeds and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so he's redeemed us from unlawful deeds or works and he set us apart so that we can engage in good deeds. And then chapter 3 and verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to every good deed. And so be, be ready to, good, to do good deeds. And then finally here in verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And so several times in the letter, and if repetition is one way to give emphasis to an idea, several times in the letter Paul is emphasizing to Titus, we need to be about doing good deeds. In fact, look at chapter 1 in verse 16. Some profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So some people are worthless to do any good thing. 
But we want to be busy about and devoted to doing good deeds. Now, good deeds and doing good deeds is a long-established practice among God's people. And so this is not the first time we've come across the idea of God's people doing good work, doing good deeds. We see it in the life and teaching of Jesus, for example. And so here's a prime example of someone approved of God doing good things, doing good deeds. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so that's how Peter describes the life of Jesus to Cornelius. Jesus went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. And so Jesus himself, by his own life, sets this example, this precedent of doing good deeds. It's Jesus that tells us the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, the Samaritan who saw the the Jew beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, having been robbed. And so the Good Samaritan takes him and takes him to the inn, binds up his wounds, uh, gives some money to the innkeeper to take care of him. So, so Jesus is teaching us at the end of that story. You remember, he says, "Now go, you go and do likewise." And so, do, do the good deeds that I've described in the story of the Good Samaritan. And then if you look at John chapter 5, Jesus describes the resurrection and the judgment. He says, Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done the good deeds will be raised to a resurrection of life, and those who have committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So in Jesus' life, In Jesus' teaching, he emphasizes doing good deeds. In the Old Testament, we can go all the way back into the Old Testament in the Law of Moses. Deuteronomy 15 verse 7 says, You shall not close your hand against your poor brother. You you open your hand. If you have a poor brother, a fellow Israelite, and he's poor, you, you don't close your hand up. You'll be stingy and unwilling to share. You, be, you open your hand, be generous to him and willing to give. That's part of the law, Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. Israel has gone very, very much a wrong direction. He compares them in that passage to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he says to them in chapter 1, 16 and 17, Stop doing evil, learn to do good. And he goes on to talk about how they should care for the fatherless and the orphan and plead for the widow. And so cease doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Learn to do good. I thought about Job chapter 31. You remember Job chapter 31 is a passage in which Job is defending himself. He's sort of defending his own righteous character. He's suffering. He knows he's not a perfect man, but in a sense he's saying, I I haven't done anything to deserve this, this degree of suffering. In chapter 31, he defends himself, his own good standing. In verse 16 he says, If I've kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it. But from my youth he grew up with me, as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, 
neither is not warmed with the fleece of my sheep. If I have lifted up my hand against the orphan, because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket, and my arm be broken off at the elbow, for calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of His majesty I can do nothing. Now if I've done any of these things, well then I'm willing to suffer the consequences. And so you can see, in defending himself, defending his own uprightness, he talks about how he's helped those in need. He says, if I haven't done that, well then I'm, I'm ready to suffer. This is patriarchal period. This is before the law of Moses. And so from before the law of Moses, we see God's people engaging in good deeds. In the law, it was required they engage in good deeds. The teaching of Jesus tells us to engage in good deeds. And then we see the early church, Acts chapter 2, from the very beginning, they're willing to sell their property and take the proceeds of that and have that distributed among those in need. We see that in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11 of the book of Acts. And then, of course, at the end of the book as well. And then we see it in various teaching in the New Testament. And so you can see there's a long tradition, but it's more than tradition, isn't it? A long tradition of God's people engaging in good work and good, good deeds. Galatians 2 and verse 10, Peter meets with, Paul meets with Peter, James, and John about preaching of the gospel. They're going to do the same work, although Paul's going to the Gentiles, Peter's going to the Jews. And at the end of that, it says in verse 10, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. You know, that's, that's part of the, the mission that they were on, to remember the poor. Not the only thing, but part of it. Galatians 6 verse 10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. First Timothy 6 and verse 18, we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And so our people must learn to engage in good deeds. We can see that's a, a theme throughout the Bible from the very beginning, even before the law of Moses, through the law, the teaching of Jesus, the early church, in the epistles as well. He goes on to say that we do good deeds to meet pressing needs. You know, some needs can wait to be met, can't they? So we might have a need, but it's not an immediate need. It's not a pressing need. It's not necessary that that be met right now. But then there are other needs that are pressing, aren't they? They're, they're immediate. I need some help right now. <laughs> I can't wait. It's a pressing need. It's an immediate need. It's a necessary uh, need to be met. And so we need, to be, we need to be aware of that. There's some people, perhaps even among us from time to time, who have pressing needs, immediate needs. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he might have something to share with the one who has need. And so don't steal. You know, if, you, if you've been a, a thief, well, you need to put that aside. You're a Christian now. That's not appropriate. And so don't steal anymore. Go out and work with your hands. Do good work. Of course, that takes lots of different forms, but do good, good work, not only so that you can care for yourself and your family, but so that you'll have something to give to those who are in need. And so, and so we work to accumulate money but our view as to what to do with that money goes beyond our own needs, our own family's needs, to the needs of others as well. 
We noted a moment ago that in the early church, from the very beginning, Christians were willing to go so far as to sell their property, take money from the sale of the property, and distribute it among those new Christians who had need. You can see that, for example, in Acts chapter 2, going all the way back to Acts chapter 2. And um, this would be in verse 44. All those who had believed were together and had all things common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So here's a guy, he's got a piece of property, he sells it. He takes the money and, and he gives it away. He just gives it to these new brethren of his as they had need. And you go into chapter 4 as well and you see something similar happening. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. He goes on in verse 34 to say, There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now it wasn't required that they do that. Don't know that all people did that. You can go down into Acts chapter 5, and there Peter tells Ananias and Sapphira, your property, you could do with it what you wanted to. But there were many who were willing to sell their property. Barnabas was one of those. He had a piece of property, sold it, brought it to the apostles. The apostles distributed it among those who had need. The church in Jerusalem took steps to provide for the pressing need of the widows among them. You see that in Acts chapter 6. Notice how this is uh, described in verse 1. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so that suggests to us this is something that's been going on for a while. They were being overlooked. That suggests this is not just a one-time event. This, this has been going on. And so the church there under the leadership of the apostles put into place some measures that would alleviate their pressing need. If you're being overlooked in the daily serving of food, <laughs> you know, you're, that's pretty pressing need, isn't it? That's pretty immediate need. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we can read about the Macedonians giving, even though they were in deep poverty, giving even beyond their ability to meet the needs of the brethren in Jerusalem. Now we're fortunate in that we live in an affluent society. We have people who, you know, top 1% or whatever it is, very wealthy people, billionaires living in, in the country. But then we have an, a well-established middle class, one of the, I don't know if I'd say unique, but one of the great features of living in the United States, have a well-established middle class. Not wealthy by our standards, by human standards, but, but certainly not poor either. And so we're somewhere in the middle. And so we're fortunate to live in an affluent society in that way. Um, and, um, but we have, a range of, we have a range of economic level, even within our own congregation. We have a range of economic situations. It may be that we kind of have the idea, well, you know, everybody's kind of like me. <laughs> everybody at church, we're, we're kind of all the same. It's not altogether true. We have a range of economic situations, and sometimes pressing needs arise among us. Sometimes there's a need, it needs to be met right now. 
in order to leave some kind of difficult situation. We need to be ready to meet that. Now we need to engage in good deeds like God's people always have. We need to be aware that there are some pressing needs that come up from time to time and be ready to respond, especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to do that? I know that there are people who manage their their finances, manage their monthly budget in this way. They they take care of their needs, but they, they set a little bit of money aside in case some need comes up. Not their own need, but the needs of others. And so they put that into their budget to have some in reserve to meet the pressing needs of others that might come up from time to time. And so are we ready to do these things? Are, are we prepared to meet the pressing needs. And then he goes on to say, we need to do this so that we won't be unfruitful. John chapter 15, I talked about this back a few weeks ago. Jesus teaches all his disciples to bear fruit. John 15 verse 1, I'm the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. And so all of us are to bear fruit. If we don't bear fruit, we're going to be cut off and burned, is is what we learn here in John chapter 15. Now understand there are different ways of bearing fruit. And so we don't want to be unfruitful. The unfruitful branches are dealt with. Well, we want to be fruitful. One of the ways, there are different ways of doing that. You know, one of the ways of being fruitful is to bring others to Christ, to evangelize and bring others into the body of Christ. That's one way to bear fruit. Personal growth is another way of bearing fruit. Now, tomorrow we begin Vacation Bible School. We're discussing the fruit of the Spirit. And so as we develop that fruit in our own character, well, that's another way of producing fruit. But here's a third way of producing fruit. Engaging in good deeds and rising up to meet pressing needs. There are multiple good effects to the giver and the receiver when we do this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, chapters 8 and 9, Paul deals with this situation. There are needy Christians back in Jerusalem, and he's one of the things he accomplishes on that third journey is collecting money to take back to those who are in need. And so he's trying to persuade the Corinthians. They had promised to to respond, to to give some money toward that end, but they have kind of been a little bit lax in following through with their promise. And so in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's encouraging them to to actually do it. Verse 8, he says this, 2 Corinthians 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. If you give to help these people, you're going to be enriched. The blessing is going to fall out upon you, the giver. And he goes on, verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. God is glorified. You're blessed. The receiver is blessed. And God is glorified in doing this good deed. And so verse 13 says, 
because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. And so, just think about all the good that's accomplished in doing a good thing like this. The receiver is obviously blessed. The giver is blessed in the ability to give. And in all of this, God is glorified and God is, is thanked. And so there are multiple ways that we bear fruit, that fruit is born in this. The fourth thing that I want to look at in this particular passage has to do with this opening phrase, our people. Now, Paul tells Titus, now Titus, our people must learn to engage in good deeds. It seems that Paul is instructing Titus to teach these things to a specific group of people. He doesn't just say, now, now people need to learn to do this. Our people need to learn to do this. Oh, now Titus is in Crete, on the island of Crete, doing the Lord's work there, working with churches there. And so Paul tells him, now our people on the island of Crete need to learn these things. The second observation I'll make about that is, you know, what Paul refers to is our people. Now we want to be in that group. Whatever that group is, our people, we want to be part of that group of people that Paul describes as our people, don't we? And so let's think about who is that? Who is this group of people described as our people? Well, obviously, I think it would be the people in Crete who are disciples of Jesus. It's the disciples of Jesus who are our people. Paul would not call those who are not disciples of Jesus our people. Not in a context, context like this anyway. To illustrate that, you know, Paul at one time was a very devout Jew, practicing uh, Judaism, at least the traditions of Judaism, very conscientiously, very devoutly, very pious in his, uh, in his practice of Judaism. But, but Paul wasn't that anymore. He wouldn't refer to... Practicing Jews the way he was is our people, not, not now. And one time Paul was a Pharisee. Again, very, very serious minded, very conscientious, very, very uh, devout and consistent in observing the traditions of the Pharisees. But, but Paul wouldn't say, you know, those Pharisees, they're our people. He, he wouldn't do that now. In fact, that seems to be the whole point of Philippians chapter 3, where he describes his former manner of life circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. But whatever things were gained to me, those I've counted laws for the sake of Christ. Now, I used to be that, but I'm not that anymore. And so we wouldn't call those who are not disciples our people. That particular phrase describes disciples of Christ. Only those in Christ would be our people. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There is only one way to the Father. It's through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which came, became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name into heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Only through Christ. And so Paul would recognize those who come to God through Christ as our people. That's what Paul did. So he teaches other people to do. And so those would be 
the our people that Paul is referring to here. At the beginning of his letters, Paul addresses the recipients. In the book of Romans chapter 1, Paul writes to and works with the saints. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, he writes to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Philippians verse, chapter 1 verse 1, he writes to the saints in Christ. Colossians 1 verse 2, he writes to the saints and the faithful brethren. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, he writes to my true child in the faith. I'm working with those who are in Christ. I'm working with those who are sanctified. I'm working with my true children in the faith. Who are my people? Christians are my people. Disciples of Jesus are my people. I thought about 1 Peter chapter 2, for example, verses 9 and 10 along these lines. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of, his, out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. And so who are our people? The people of God. Those are our people. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the Gentiles who at one point in their experience did not have God. They were alienated. And now through the blood of Christ they've drawn near to God and now are fellow citizens with uh, others who have drawn near to God as well. Our people are saints, disciples, brethren, Christians. The disciples are called Christians. First in Antioch, Acts 11, verse 26. The question then is, how does one become a disciple? If the disciples are our people, well, that's, that's the next question we need to ask. How does one become a disciple? How does one become a person within this group of our people? Well, Matthew 18, Jesus teaches that all disciples are to be made of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is not the only thing a person needs to do to become a disciple, but it's, it's one of the things, that one of the conditions that we meet to become a disciple. We're told that we need to know with certainty that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. We need to repent of our sins and be baptized. That is, be immersed in water in the name of Jesus Christ in order to become a disciple, a Christian. How does one enter into Christ? He's baptized into Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Notice especially Romans 6, verse 5, talks about how are united with Him in the likeness of His death. Who are our people when Paul tells Titus, our people must learn to engage, who is that? It's the disciples of Jesus. It's those who have put their faith in Christ. Those who have come to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. Those who have repented of their sins and devoted themselves to following Christ. And have been united with Him by being immersed in water in the name of Jesus Christ. Those are our people. But, but we can take that a, a step further as well. Those disciples who hold to the doctrine of Christ are our people. Now in Paul's day, there were some brethren who did not hold to the true doctrine, either in their teaching or in their behavior. And so they didn't hold to the true doctrine, to, to the faith. Either they taught something other than the faith, or in their behavior they acted contrary to what the faith taught them to do. 
And Paul would not have considered either of those our people. There were in Paul's day certain Christians, certain, certain who, ones who had been baptized, who were trying to bind elements of the law, for example, circumcision. You read about some of them in Acts chapter 15, except you be circumcised after the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And in various other books as well, this issue is brought up of binding circumcision. And it's a violation of the law. It's a distortion of the gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. Paul says in the book of Galatians, which deals with this subject, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he's to be accursed. That's strong language, isn't it? Someone deviates from the gospel that we've preached to you, he's accursed. Wouldn't be included in our people, would he? He's accursed. He's not holding to the true doctrine, so he wouldn't be included among our people. In the book of Colossians, Paul deals with what's sometimes called the Colossian heresy. And so these are people that are teaching false doctrine, and, and they're perverting the gospel, adding elements to the gospel perhaps, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it that they don't lead you astray and take you captive. These are not our people. They're teaching something contrary to the truth of the gospel. Did Paul consider those who taught error concerning the resurrection our people? It's in that context in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 that Paul says, evil companions corrupt good morals. Be careful that you don't succumb to the teaching of these people. They're not our people. They're teaching something other than the truth of the gospel. First Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 and 4, Paul says, I want to warn you about those who would teach a different gospel a different doctrine. They don't agree with sound words. He's conceited and understands nothing. Doesn't sound like he's describing our people. There are other passages that speak to this point as well. You might remember the issue in 1 John was, did Jesus come in the flesh? Did the Son of God appear in the flesh? Do you remember what John says about those who are teaching that particular doctrine? They went out from us. Why? They went out from us. Why? Because they're not of us. These, these are not our people. Who are our people? Our people are those who are disciples of Jesus. They've embraced Christ as the Son of God, as the Savior. They're devoting their lives to Him. They've been united with Him in baptism, being baptized in His name. And then they continue in the true doctrine. People can deviate from that doctrine pervert the doctrine, distort it, teach something that's just absolutely untrue, and they're no longer in that group that can be described as our people. We need to learn to handle the Word of God correctly. That's the idea in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Show yourself, present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. We need to handle it accurate, handle it correctly. We're warned not to add to it or take away from it, not to wander from it to the right or to the left. 
We're warned not to go beyond what's written, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. And we're encouraged to abide in the doctrine of Christ, 2 John verse 9. We've mentioned several times that we are to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so those are our people, I'm sure Paul would say. Those who have become disciples of Jesus, those who are abiding, continuing steadfastly in our doctrine, when people begin to stray from that, they may uh, go so far astray that they are no longer considered our people. Not everything done in religion is supported by the Word, either explicitly or implicitly or by approved precedent. We want to do what's approved by the Word and not stray from it at all. Well, who are our people? Those who share our faith. Those who share our hope in Christ. Not those of a certain, certain social standing. You might hear that kind of expression used sometimes by the, you know, the, the higher-ups, I suppose, the, the aristocracy. Well, we want to associate with our kind of people, you know, our people. Well, that's not... That's, that's not true of God's people, our people. It's not limited to those who are rich or poor or slave or free. Not limited to a certain gender, male or female, or a certain race, Jew or Gentile. Our people come from all economic levels, all social standings, all races and genders. It's sort of a unique family in that way, isn't it? All under the fatherhood of God. And so we want to be in this group. This group Paul describes as our people because those are the Lord's people. It's a privilege to be part of that group, to be among our people. It's a great privilege. It's an honor. Bring some responsibility, but it's a great blessing. If you're not part of that people, you need to think about your situation very seriously this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the opportunity to come together today and to worship you. You're certainly worthy of our worship, Father, and we praise you because of your great glory and your majesty and your splendor, because of who you are, not only because of what you've done for us, but simply because you are God and that you're worthy of our devotion and our worship and our praise. And we pray, Father, that the things we've done here today have been pleasing to you. Our Father, we are thankful that you have created for yourselves among us, among humanity, a group of people who belong especially to you. It's our, it's our ambition, Father, it's our purpose that we be part of that group. We're thankful that you sent Christ into the world to die for us, to make atonement for our sin on the cross through his blood. We accept that, Father. We believe that. We understand that he is the Son of God and he's done this for us. And so we devote ourselves to Him. We repent of the errors of the past, and we give our lives to Him. We freely confess that we believe He is the Son of God, and we've been baptized in His name so that we can be part of that great people of yours. Father, help us to walk in the true doctrine, to both teach it and live it, not stray away from it to the right or to the left, not pervert it or distort it in any way. Help us to be lifelong students of that doctrine. Help us to understand it and hold to it and then teach it to others as well. We pray, Father, for your guidance and uh, for your help in, in that endeavor. Father, we understand that you've made great promises for your people, that one day you will take your people into heaven so that they can be with you in your presence in glory forever and ever. 
And we pray, Father, that we will live in such a way in this life so that we can enjoy those great blessings in the next. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.